welcome to our second edition of APAC M&A Insights podcast. My name is Nick Wall, and together with my colleague, Tokutaka Ito, who's joining us today, I'm the co-head of Allen & Overy's Japan M&A practice. As well as Toku, I'm also joined today by my partner, Dario De Martino, who has a wealth of experience in advising Japanese clients on their U.S. inbound investments. Today, we're going to talk about some of the recent trends we're seeing in Japanese investments in the U.S. and also touch on some of the regulatory issues that are impacting investments and acquisitions in the U.S., particularly around CFIUS, which is the U.S. regulator that is responsible for vetting all inbound investments into the U.S. Finally, if you haven't already done so, please do make sure to visit the Allen & Overy website for the latest edition of our M&A Insights publication, in which we discuss topical global M&A trends. Dario, let's start with you. In the U.S., what are you seeing in terms of Japanese investment? Sure, and uh, thanks for having me, Nick. Look, a few months ago, I feared that COVID-19 would put a damper on M&A activity in the U.S., but Despite a very rare combination of global public health, of course, but also political, social, and economic uncertainties, the outlook for U.S.-bound M&A deals, specifically tech-focused deals, continues to, to just soar. The pandemic may have closed the physical borders, but it hasn't affected the appetite for deals, whether it's because of a desire of Japanese companies to scale to increase competitiveness or just keeping pace with innovation. Essentially, all Japanese companies I represent with a strong balance sheet are doing deals in the United States these days, including those that have operated in industries that have been most affected by the pandemic, which are considering divestitures, restructurings, and in some cases are refocusing on regions with uh, faster growing economies like the US. And I've also noticed a higher number of mid-sized companies that have sort of followed big global Japanese corporates with respect to M&A plans. So that plus a very healthy stock market, the availability of cheap debt and low interest rates makes the M&A market in the US the poster child for the land of M&A opportunities. I see both uh, corporate strategics, but also private equity firms competing for the same good targets. You know, when I started practicing, Japanese buyers would mostly look at manufacturing companies in the US, but today that has changed. And a, and a growing number of clients are looking at software, uh, software-enabled companies, but mostly proven technologies, you know, think cloud technology and cloud-based services, communication software, uh, but also data, uh, business intelligence and data analytics, and of course, fintech and payment companies, and really other technologies that enable remote working or that improve the efficiency of remote working. And I've also noticed an increased interest in the green economy green and blue hydrogen, battery storage, and so forth. So I think the next 12 months or so will continue to be a very exciting time for deal making in the US. Thanks, Dario. That's really interesting to hear. And certainly what we're seeing at this end with the stagnating domestic economy, huge amounts of debt available in the market, very robust balance sheets, does make the outbound flow 
I think, continue. But Toku, I know that Japanese companies historically like to go and see the businesses they're investing in. How's that working in the current COVID climate? Yes, that's a very good point, I think. The current travel restriction is impacting on the ability to kick the tires, uh, i.e. on-site due diligence. Japanese clients would like to see what their leads, what they are doing, but this seems to pose some frustration uh, to proceed with the transaction without on-site due diligence. The flip side is increased attention on software, uh, which seems to be in line with what Dario mentioned, rather than hard asset. For example, Tachi's acquisition of Global Logic and Panasonic's acquisition of Blue Yonder are good examples of the trend, I think. That's interesting. I think certainly it, it does feel like there is a move towards investment in the digital economy. As, as Dario, you know, Japanese clients historically have been overly active in the in the manufacturing sector. That does throw up a number of issues, though, in particular the sort of the valuation side of it. There's some, some crazy US valuations on, in particular, tech deals, digital deals. How are people addressing that on your side of the ocean? Sure. You're right, Nick. I think there's been a lot of discussions around ways to bridge the gap in terms of uh, valuation. And and one thing that I've noticed is an increase in the use of earnouts, but also a related increase in the portion of the purchase price that is subject to an earnout. And that's something that started, you know, during the pandemic, but even as pandemic related restrictions are lifted and and face-to-face meetings resume and sort of introduce a level of normalcy. I think that some of these, you know, deal terms that were introduced during the pandemic, including this increased use of the earnout, may likely remain long after the pandemic becomes a hopefully distant memory. Sure. So, in your deals, Dario, how, how do you typically see parties structure the earnout? You know, what what sort of periods do these go over? You know, what what are the metrics they use to fix the the amount payable? Sure. The, the way most earnouts that I see work is that part of the purchase price is paid up front with the rest deferred and based on the acquired business hitting certain negotiated goals or milestones. And as you mentioned, these targets are typically financial in nature, including achieving certain threshold revenues, EBITDA, net income, but can also be operational. Think, for example, a minimum number of customers or entering a new market, which is really common these days, but can also be based on the occurrence of specific events that can affect the profitability of the acquired business. So think for a pharmaceutical company, the receipt of regulatory approval of a new product. And Japanese buyers generally like earnouts because less cash is required at closing and if the acquire business fails to achieve these goals within the set period, which you know used to be about a year, but during the pandemic has increased to more than a year, it's typically two, three years after closing, then the buyer is relieved from making the contingent payments. And so that contingency on payment reduces the risk of overpaying for the business and sort of shifts at least some of buyer risk to the sellers. 
Uh, on the other hand, a U.S. seller may entertain an earnout because it allows the deal to move forward while allowing them to ultimately receive the desired purchase price if the business, of course, performs as expected after closing. But one thing that I like to remind our clients is that earnouts come with a host of issues. You know, you have a lot of negotiation complexities. You have the potential for disputes on whether milestones were, in fact, achieved. The issues about how the business should be run during the earnout period. And so I always recommend our clients to allocate a fair amount of time to structure the earnout and also consider additional issues. You know, it's not just about structuring issues, but it's also about accounting, tax, uh, US securities laws, and, and other complexities. Thanks, Dario. Yeah, these can be tricky and, and they can throw up a lot of issues, particularly if a party is agreeing to make a payment, the amount of which is outside its control. Toku, what sort of issues do you feel that, that your clients are struggling with? You know, what, what are the sort of issues that the buyers find difficult when trying to agree these earnouts? Yeah, of course, the metrics is one of the important issues because, for example, if we utilize revenue, it is easier to assert them. But from buyer's perspective, EBITDA or net income is more important because they represent the ability to make a profit. So approach to the metrics and how they are assessed would be important point to take time, but depend on who has control over, the, over those uh, figures. And the sellers, from the seller's perspective, they may require certain restriction on the buyer's activities following the closing so that figures may not be manipulated. So how the fair and precise evaluation on whether the milestone has been achieved and also the approach to secure the fair treatment, most important topic we have to think about in formulating the appropriate structure. Thanks, Toko. I think that's really helpful. I think people tend to jump into earnouts quite often and they perhaps use the same valuation metrics as they used in their initial valuation, EBITDA multiple. And they might not always be the right one, but I guess it can depend a lot on who has actual control of the business and who prepares those figures. Let's change topics. And there's something I'd be very interested in hearing Dario's view from the ground, and that's the current regulatory environment. You know, for a long time under President Trump, we were telling our clients that CFIUS, it's very hard to predict. It's, it reports directly into the president, so which way it's going to go. It's unclear. It's been used politically. But what's the regulatory environment now like in the US? And is CFIUS getting a bit more easy to navigate under the, the Biden regime? That's a great question, Nick. I think that in the US, CFIUS has expanded significantly, especially following passage of FIRMA which introduced mandatory notification requirements for certain transactions, including investments in U.S. businesses that are associated with critical technologies, critical infrastructure, or, and this is really important, sensitive personal data of U.S. citizens, where a non-U.S. government has a substantial interest in the buyer. And in these terms that I've just mentioned, critical technology and critical infrastructure are really broad and intentionally flexible concepts. And FIRMA 
expanded their scope to include emerging and foundational technologies, including those used in computer storage, semiconductors, and telecommunications equipment. Just last year, there were over 300 transactions subject to Cepheus. And not surprisingly, the computer manufacturing and software development sectors saw probably the greatest number of review transactions. And as I mentioned, personal data has also become a key area of scrutiny for Cepheus. Most of the enforcement actions last year involved concerns about Chinese investors' access to sensitive personal data of U.S. citizens. And so as a result, it is really critical for Japanese deal makers to closely assess the Cepheus risk profile of a U.S. target and consider whether to voluntarily notify Cepheus or whether they should voluntarily notify Cepheus to seek pre-closing clearance, which is a form of confirmation that there are no unresolved national security concerns. And you mentioned the Trump administration. Look, I think the Trump administration's overall relationship with China had a sort of a chilling effect on investments and acquisitions from China. But I think that these trends are likely to continue under the Biden administration. So far, the Biden administration seems to have largely maintained the Trump administration's stance against China in terms of trade sanctions and export controls. So I actually expect that traditional U.S. allies, including Japan, of course, will probably fill the void left by China in investments and acquisitions of these particular industries. But I do still think the Japanese buyer need to be careful because their investments and acquisitions may still get close review and possibly require you know, mitigation actions, especially to the extent that they involve technology, intellectual property, personal data, uh, or other cutting-edge and emerging technologies. Thanks. That isn't surprising, but hopefully for Japanese investors in the US, if they get their analysis right, if they engage with the regulator in the right way, then the sentiment towards China actually may work in favor of the Japanese investors. Certainly that's something we, we would hope so, although, you know, as you mentioned, Dario, the getting the analysis right is vital. Toku, the US market is a huge market, but in some ways it it's quite a unique market. Are there any other things that you find Japanese investors uh, struggle with or are surprised when they do their U.S. transactions? Yeah, I think th this may be relevant to Cepheus filings, but uh, we saw a lot of Japanese companies needed to spend substantial amount of time to go through the regulatory process, including Cepheus, and how to score the loading filings. And those filings could have strong impact on the entire deal timing. So we need to factor in those delays in establishing the entire deal schedule. Also, in that context, we have to care about particular sensitivities around control of the target in the interim period, i.e. the period between signing and closing, and also the gun jumping risks. I think that's a very important point, and that's something which it's very easy to trip up on. I know when I go to the, the shop and you know, I recently bought myself, uh, I say it's a new, new car, but it's an old second-hand truck. 
and I was just so keen, so keen to get in it and drive it around. But you know, you have to wait until it's gone through its warrant of fitness, until it's properly registered. But for business people, when they've committed to buy a company, I really do understand the very, very strong desire to get in and start understanding the business they've agreed to acquire. But the gun jumping risk, I think, is getting more severe year by year and, and regulators are really clamping down on it. I think we're probably coming up to the end of our time, but Dario Toku, thank you very much for that. I think the takeaways for me were certainly Cepheus is not getting any easier under the Biden administration and is something that probably needs to be taken care of up front. Also as well, Toku, as you mentioned, deal times are taking longer. So factoring that into into your transaction, but also factoring in how you manage the risk during that period is, is vitally important. And that also comes into payments. You know, if if earnouts are being used and payments are extending over two or three years, how is the process for managing the unexpected being considered and dealt with? I think these are all absolutely vital points. And then finally, the move towards the digital economy is a very, very hot topic here in Japan as well. And we have seen the, the previous Suga administration set up a digital transformation authority. And I think there is really an interest in you know, transformative technology, but also the use of M&A as a, as a tool to acquire, essentially acquire time and ramp up their company's digital transformation. Thank you. For all of our listeners, I hope there's been some interesting thoughts here. Obviously, Toku, Dario, myself, always delighted to share ideas, share thoughts, share concepts on what we're seeing in the market. So please do reach out to us at any stage if you're interested in discussing some of the topics that we've talked about today.